Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, so let's get down to business. Today I'm starting a little mini-series called The Tale of Two Cities, and it's just going to be this week and next week. But what I want to do is provide a little background, a little context for it. I don't think that as far as our generation, we've ever lived in as a disruptive time as we are right now. And when we look at how our world has been disrupted, I think it is irrevocably disrupted. I don't think we're ever going back to the way it was. And almost every generation, if you're a bit of a student of history like I am, and you, and you look, you discover that almost every generation has some cataclysmic event that takes place, like a world war or a Great Depression or a, or a pandemic or a flu or a plague or a civil war or one of these things that comes in and, and disrupts uh, the flow of life. And here we are in the, in the midst of ours, and the big question for us is, how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to handle it? Because here's the thing, we don't know when it's going to end. When is this COVID-19 thing going to end? Well, it's got to end sooner or later because we're running out of letters in the Greek alphabet, right, for, for, the, for the variants. And, and on that point, by the way, people, it's Omicron, not Omicron. Everybody's saying Omicron. It's not negotiable. It's the, the Greek letter Omicron, which is the short O. The long O is Omega. You can't pronounce Omicron, Omicron, and yet they all are out there in the news media. They're all pronouncing it wrong, and they accuse others of spreading misinformation. <laughs> Come on, people. So now you're the wiser for it. But here's the toughest part of, of this time, this season we're in, is if we were in a world war, if we were in a civil war, at least we would know who our enemy was. At least we would know what we were fighting. And the problem is we're fighting an invisible enemy. And because we can't see it, and because we don't know how to fight it, we've turned to fighting each other. Hasn't that been fun? Right? And, uh, of course, we fought about lockdowns, then we fought about masks, then we fought about vaccines. Of course, we also fought about gender and race and culture and everything else in between. And didn't Jesus warn us about this in Matthew 24? Did he not tell us there was a time coming when he said the love of many will grow cold and brother shall turn against brother? How many feel like maybe, just maybe, we're living in that time? Let me tell you a story about this. I just heard this week. It's fascinating. So I have this pastor friend. He's got two brothers. They're all Christians. Don't miss that part of the story. They're all Christians. He's got these two brothers. The one brother is unvaccinated. The other brother is fully vaccinated. And they've got in a battle about this vaccination. And the unvaccinated brother considers the vaccine inherently evil. The vaccinated brother considers his unvaccinated brother inherently evil because he will not get the vaccination to protect his fellow human being. So these two brothers have been at each other's throats for weeks and weeks to the point where now they stop talking to each other, right? They're being divided. Jesus said even brother will turn against brother. His two Christian brothers turn against each other. So in the midst of this, they're not talking to each other anymore. Guess what happens recently? Their father dies. And so now they have a funeral. Now what do they argue about? Well, you know what they're fighting about. They're fighting about, is this funeral going to be uh, vaccinated only, or are we going to allow the unvaccinated? So now they're at each other's throat again. They're having this argument. In the midst of this battle over the funeral, you ready for the twist of irony here? 
the fully vaccinated brother comes down with COVID and can't go to the funeral. And I'm sorry I'm laughing because uh, I feel terrible about it that these, two, that these two Christians are at each other's throat. But here's my question. Can't we do a little better in this? Can't we do a little better in this? Do we really want the world looking at us and us falling into the same traps and having the same dumb battles and fighting each other on these things? And should we not, I'm just asking this question, should we not be living at a higher level? Should we not be full of grace and mercy and acceptance? And shouldn't we be full of the love of God? And when we can't get along even with one another, there's something really wrong with that picture. Now, if you love gallows humor, which I do, I got to show you this, a true headline, true story. Here it is from the newspaper. German euthanasia group says it will only carry out assisted suicides on people vaccinated against COVID-19. You know, you all see the irony and the humor in that, don't you? It turns out if you're not vaccinated, you really can't travel anywhere. <laughs> you get that, eh? It's funny, isn't it? I'm hilarious. And, <laughs> and not everybody thinks this is funny, but, but I think it's right. And, and so here's, here's what I've discovered. I, I, think we're in a, I think we're in a test. Do you think that God is sitting up in heaven and going, oh, there's a pandemic down in the earth, and it doesn't seem to be ending. What am I going to do? Do you think he's worried about that? Do you think he thinks he's lost control of the world? You know what God's doing? He's looking down and going, huh, hiccup. That's all this is. It's a hiccup in the greater scheme, in the greater uh, expanse of time. It's no big deal. It's nothing for him. And here we are making all this big stink about it. Now, I want to share something with you. So some of you know, you watched The Exchange the other night. That's our online discussion show we had. And I had a great guest. He was the former premier of Manitoba, Calvin Gertzen, Christian man, good friend of mine. Uh, it was a great interview. But one of the things, that I, and you can watch it on our YouTube channel, by the way, if you missed it. But one of the things he said to me a few months ago that I haven't forgotten, I brought it up again on Tuesday, was this. He said, Mark, this thing's going to end. And he says, when it is over... People will not remember our position. They're only going to remember our behavior. And I thought to myself, that's great advice coming from a politician, coming from anybody. And it's the absolute truth. They're not going to remember your position that you took on this or on that or the next thing. They're going to remember your behavior. How did you act? How did you conduct yourself? And I've been telling leaders in particular, because I think for those in leadership, those are running businesses, those are running ministries, those are pastoring churches, I don't think they've ever gone through as difficult a time as this. And I keep reminding people. I say, you are in a test. My advice to you is pass it. Don't, don't fail the test, right? Live the way that you feel you ought to and should live. So that's my context for this story I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you about today. And the title of my message is called The Tale of Two Cities. They're going to take two weeks to get through this. I'm going to give you a lot of historical context for this. I'm not, of course, talking about Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, which was London and Paris. I'm talking about St. Augustine's Tale of Two Cities, which was titled The City of God. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Augustine. He was canonized by the Catholic Church. He lived during the time of the Roman Empire. I want to show you a picture of the Roman Empire. Most of us are familiar because we read the Bible, and uh, the New Testament's all about the Roman Empire. It was immense. It was hard to believe that this area that the Romans conquered from their headquarters in, in Rome, Italy, ended up covering Great, Great, Great Britain and Northern Africa and all of Europe and all of Asia Minor and, and, and the Middle East and into Egypt and Saudi Arabia. It was extraordinary to think 
that they were able in that day and age to conquer, and they ruled for some 500 years. And we've all seen those pictures and those images as we read the New Testament, so we know a lot about it. And so we have Augustine. Uh, he is living uh, at the tail end of the Roman Empire. And uh, he lived in the city of Hippo, which is in northern Africa, which is Algeria today. And uh, he was a professor at the university there. And if you go look him up online, they're going to refer to him as uh, Augustine of Hippo. Now, I'm not sure who would want the name Hippo in their name, but uh, he's stuck with it, right? I mean, I want you to meet my brother. This is Harry, you know, Harry the Hippo and my, my other brother, R- Randy the Rhino. Uh, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody wants those names in their moniker. But nevertheless, he, he, is, he is known as, as Augustine of Hippo. Now, here, here's a story. He was this brilliant man. There's a great story. Maybe I'll get to it in this series. Maybe I won't about how he got to where he was and how he became this incredibly learned uh, university professor. So the history of Rome is a little bit goes like this, uh, the Christian history. Some of you remember in AD 300, the Roman emperor, whose name was Constantine, was converted to Christ. Another fantastic story. So he becomes a Christian. They're slowly Christianizing the Roman Empire. By, by AD 395, they declare Christianity the state or the Roman religion leaving behind all their pagan religion with all the Roman gods that many of you are familiar with. And so that's the birth of what we know as today as the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's in, in AD 395. Only 15 years later, AD 410, the Visigoths, the, the pagans, the barbarians from the north, invade Rome and sack the city and destroy the empire of Rome. Nobody thought this empire would ever come down. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to think that these barbarians from the north would be able to crush the Romans, but that's exactly what happened. So once they did that, and they did it with great fanfare, they came in and raped the women and killed people and murdered people and and, uh, uh, tortured people and burned things, and they were barbarians. You know, when you're a barbarian, you act like one, for goodness sakes, right? Live up to your name. And so so they they made this mess, big carnage everywhere. And then they started, the Goths started to spread this ideology that the reason they were able to defeat Rome, the reason Rome fell, because nobody could believe it, was because Rome had abandoned their pagan gods and embraced Christianity. You can read, go look it up. This is a true story. And that became widespread. And not only that, they mocked the Christians. And they said, where was your God? When we were raping your wives and beating you up and killing your family, where was your God? If your God was God, wouldn't he have showed up? Well, what happened is the Christians became obviously profoundly discouraged in the midst of that and began to question maybe their God wasn't real and where was their God in the midst of this? Now, this great intellect of St. Augustine decided he was going to write a rebuttal. And he sat down to pen to paper and he wrote a rebuttal he started writing, it was, he called it The City of God, and in fact, it wasn't one book, it was 22 books, and he wrote the 22-book rebuttal over a period of 13 years. It ended up becoming the most read piece of literature in the Middle Ages. It was this profound, it's just, I, I mean, it's, if you bought it today in a book form, it's two volumes, it'd be about this thick, or you can download it for free on the internet, that's what I did. Uh, it's tough reading, it's heavy slugging, and it covers just about every subject under Christendom that you can possibly think of. And of course, it's brilliantly written, and today he's generally regarded one of the greatest minds, Christian minds, of, of all time. 
Now, the city of God is actually titled the city of God, but it's actually the tale of two cities. And his thesis, his main thesis, took him 20, 13 years to write this. I'm going to sum this all up for you in 20 minutes. Aren't you excited about that? And uh, that, that's how I t- take the most complicated things in the world, dumb them right down, sum it up in 20 minutes. So here's, here, here goes. So he, he took this idea of the tale of two cities, and the tale of two cities was the city of man and the city of God. And the city of man, of course, was the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man makes on the earth. And this is a biblical concept, by the way. He didn't invent this. This is one of the biblical metaphors. The city of God is, of course, the kingdom of God, the kingdom from heaven. And again, it's a biblical concept. We're going to look at some verses about it today. And what he did was he uh, juxtaposed these two kingdoms like they do because we live in this dynamic tension between these two kingdoms. And most of you know enough about your theology to know that that's where we live. And though he comforted the Romans for all they suffered during the fall of Rome, he rebuked them for this one simple thought that I'm going to drive home today, that they had bought into the values of the Roman Empire, and they had put their hope in Rome and not in God. So you say, huh, what's that got to do with me today? Aren't you a little late? You're 1,600 years late on this one. I don't think so. I'm wondering, I, I'm just going to show you some pictures. When you turn on the news and you see images like this and like this and like this and like this and like this, how many of you begin to ask yourself this question? How much time does Western civilization really have left? Could we be at the tail end of Western civilization as we know it? And is the possibility, because I think there's something really wrong in the world today. I look around me. I look at what's happening with democracy. I look at what's happening with people's behavior. And I have come to the conclusion that maybe in our lifetimes, we will witness the unexpected collapse of Western civilization as we know. Maybe not, but maybe we will. But here's my two questions going back to Augustine. Number one, if that happens, will they blame us, the Christians, like they did in Rome? And the answer to that question is, yes, of course they will, because they're already blaming us now for how negatively we influence the world. I mean, look at the miserable things we try to foist on, on, on the world. These ideal, idealisms that are so unhelpful, like the sanctity of life and traditional marriage and sexual morality. What is wrong with us to pollute the world with these concepts? They're so outdated and, and, and you know, archaic. It's ridiculous, right? So I think there's no question that we'll get blamed for it. But the bigger and more important question, the question I'm asking today is this. How are we going to respond And have we and will we put our hope in the city of man instead of the city of God? And it's an important question for us because we are so pulled into it, just like the Romans were. Now, let me me show you what the scripture says about this. Here's my text for today. It's Psalm 46, verse 4 to 7. It says this. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Which means pause and meditate on what I just said. And he says, there is a river whose streams make glad the, river, the city of God. The city of God is this elusive 
kingdom of God. When Jesus showed up on the earth, remember what he said? He said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And the thing that we are seeking after and looking after in life is the city of God, but we are living in the city of man. Now, let me tell, tell you a little bit of the history of cities here for a moment, because man has been preoccupied with building cities from the very beginning. And the very first city that was built was built by a man named Cain. You all know the story of Cain. Cain killed his brother. He was a pretty cool dude. He killed his brother and went off and built a city. So first city, I'm not sure who he built it with. Weren't too many people around, but he was building a city. So there you go. The next big city, it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, and he went out and built and founded a city, and that city's name was Babel. Well, we all know the story of that one, don't we? We We're all familiar with that. And just for the record, if you're looking for a biblical name for your child, don't ever name them Nimrod, right? I mean, what was this parent thinking? Nimrod? How many of you growing up, Nimrod was an insult? Anybody? Am I the only one in the world? Yeah, there was two names that we used to insult our friends with, Dipstick and Nimrod. So don't, no, don't name your two children Dipstick and Nimrod. Don't do it. It's wrong. All right. So, you know, you get a lot of good advice in church if you, if you show up here on a Sunday morning. So, so he, he builds this city, or he founds this city, and of course, we know the history of this city. So it said the people were all all one mind, they were all one language, they were all in one place, and they came up with this grand idea, I suppose Nimrod, you know, that's how good an idea it was, Nimrod was leading, And, uh, and this is what it said, it said, let us build a tower to the heavens and make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad. And it says that God looked down on what they were doing, building this city. He says the people are all of one mind and one language, Now, nothing they determined to do will be withheld with them. Did you hear what he said? He said, they can't be stopped. They are of one mind. This is going to happen. So, you all know the story. He came down, confounded their languages, gave them all different languages. They couldn't communicate, didn't, and he spread them out all over the world. And that's why we have all these different languages all over the world. At least, that's the biblical story of this, right? And so, a lot of people see, well, see, there you are. They, they tried to build this, this tower to heaven. Don't miss the imagery of this. Why were they building a tower to heaven? So that they could get to tower, or sorry, that, so that they could get to heaven, the heavens, without going God's way. They could do it man's way. And don't miss the fact they were making a name for themselves. There's a famous painting from the 16th century. Here it is here of the Tower of Babel. I doubt that's what it looked like, but it's sort of interesting to have this unfinished tower in your mind. If you go to Iraq where Babel was, uh, you can find this ziggurat that many people think that's the ruins. Uh, It would make sense right in the middle of a plain. Here's this something that's fallen down in the place. Whether that's the actual place or not, we know that it's a fact and true that they tried to do this. But here's my point. God said that they're all of one mind. They've set their mind to do this thing, to make a name for themselves. And nothing they determined to do will be withheld from them. God didn't actually, by confounding their language, God didn't actually stop them. All he did was postpone them. Because man has been building towers to the heavens ever since. If you go into a major city, anywhere in the world, what do you see in the downtown area? Skyscrapers and towers. If you go to Toronto, what will you see? The CN Tower. And, you know, here's the thing that's interesting about these towers. They they, they go up into the heavens. They're extraordinary. It's true. They're a testimony to man's uh, ingenuity. But they're also, they put names on the builder. It's called the CN Tower. 
the largest tower in the world is in the United Arab Emirates. Here it is. It's the Burj Tower. We've been to the Emirates. Uh, it's, it's really startling. It's hard to believe. You can see this when you're in the plane. You can see it for hundreds of miles away. It's so extraordinarily high. And just so you know, it is, in fact, named after the ruler of the Emirates. So that's what people do. Think Trump Tower. People build towers and name them after themselves. And man has, has not stopped in his determination to build the city of man. That's the, the point I'm making here. And why is it that we're so drawn to these places? Have you noticed that? We're so drawn to cities. Most of you in this room, you live, you live in a city. Why do we live here? Well, there's lots of reasons, but, but you know, economically and different things. But there's this tremendous pull and this tremendous gravitation to cities. And they are symbolic of this thing called the city of man. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Crocodile Dundee. How many of you know Crocodile Dundee? You remember this movie from back in the 80s? And there's some really funny scenes in it. The knife scene is my favorite. But my second favorite was when he comes to, to New York City, and he's in the limousine, and he's talking to the limousine driver, and he says to him, imagine seven million people all wanting to live together. New York City must be the friendliest place in the world. <laughs> Which was funny because in the 80s, it had such a reputation of the fact that New Yorkers hated each other. And uh, there's a scene. Do you, have, do you have 30 seconds for a clip? Yeah. Well, I'm in charge, so you're getting it. Uh, and so here's, my, here's the clip that I just love it. He, he's in the limousine. Just after he said that, he comes up to a stoplight and starts talking to strangers on the streets. Here it is. Nick Dundee from Australia. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I think we're really good. Good. This came down for a couple of days. Probably see you around. Bye. I love. I love the look at the end. <laughs> so perplexed. And so, anyway, that's a little bit of a snapshot of the history of cities. And the cities are, are really, this is what they are. And don't miss it. Cities are a testimony to the achievement of man. And they're, they're a symbol. They're a metaphor for what man can do without God. And I'm not saying they're, 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 cities are a terrible thing. If you ever have a chance to go to New York City, it's an extraordinary vacation. You'll stand at the bottom of the Empire State Building and you'll think to yourself, my God, how did these people ever build this thing 100 years ago? I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that. But what we're going to do in this is I, I want to drive a big, strong contrast between the city of God and the city of man. That was the whole point that uh, Augustine was making. And he was rebuking, and don't miss it, he was comforting them in, this, in these books. But he was also rebuking them for falling into the values of the city of man and putting their hope in the city of man. And he said, you know what, your hope is actually not in Rome. Your hope is about that. So the first and simple point that I, I want to make is, and it's I'm only going to make the one to, today, you're going to like this, is this, is that in the city of God, we live by much higher values. And you know, the scripture says that we are in the world, but we are not 
of the world because Philippians 3 verse 20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. We are actually not citizens of planet earth. Our citizenship is in heaven and sometimes we forget that and we live in this place, there's no question, but the scripture defines us and declares us specifically as strangers and pilgrims in the land. We are just passing through and sometimes we forget about that and we're holding on way too tight to the world. And there's this really interesting passage. Uh, we all know about Abraham. We all know his story from the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, it sums up his journey in some very specific forms. And it mentions the city of God. This is what it says. It says, by faith, Abraham journeyed off with his family, not knowing where he was going. And he landed in this place. It was the promised land. And it said, him and, and, and Isaac and Jacob, they dwelt in tents. They never lived in a city. He, his entire life never lived in a city and never even built a house. He dwelt in tents the entire time. And it specifically says, waiting for the city that God was going to build. And even though he did not see it in his lifetime, he could see it afar off, the city of God. And that's what it says about Abraham. And so what Abraham did, and it was, you know, a bit of an exceptional situation there, was he didn't get all attached to this world and the things of this world. And one of the challenges for us, because we live in the world, we sometimes forget that we are mere sojourners, that we are passing through our citizenship. Your passport really says something else. It doesn't say Canada. It says the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes we forget that and we get so pulled into the kingdom of man or the city of man. So I want to tell you a city story uh, about this to illustrate this. So uh, some of you know, probably most of you know, that Kathy and I, when we vacation, particularly when it's cold, we like to go to Florida. Who doesn't like to go to Florida? You know what a Jewish... Uh, mama's favorite wine is, I want to go to Florida. That's what it is. And so, 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 you know, we go to Florida sometimes on our vacation. We've gone to the same place for, for many, many years in, in a row. And uh, the place we go, Southwest Florida, is a place of very, very wealthy people. And these people live in mansions and they have yachts and they drive the fanciest cars you have ever seen. And I kind of love it. I'm a car guy. I don't own them or buy them. I just like to look at them and understand them and research them. And I love it because every day I see Rolls Royces and Bentleys and Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Aston Martins and every, any kind of car you can imagine. You see them going down the street every day, these beautiful, fantastic cars. And this place has these incredible, famous people that live there. Shania Twain lives in this community, apparently has a house there. Eminem, the rapper, has a house. Now, I don't know where their homes are because I haven't been invited to any parties. So I have, no, I have no idea where they live. Now, just for the record, we stay in a little one-bedroom apartment. We don't have a mansion or a yacht, just so you, you know. And we stay in this little apartment. And the real, th- the real reason I go there is I like to play tennis in the winter outside, which I do. And I go to the tennis club, and I meet these crazy and interesting people some with money and some with reputation and some that are famous. I'll tell you, the last time I was there, I played tennis, and this is a true story, I played tennis with the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, the one who was the charge d'affaires in uh, Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war. He oversaw the largest um, embassy in American history, a contingent of 8,500 people. He 
we, in our conversation, I'd love to, I'll tell you this story another day, but in our conversations, he knew presidents and prime ministers and leaders all over the world. I just felt like a fish out of water with this dude. Anyway, I played him tennis, and here's the beautiful thing about tennis. It is the great equalizer. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how famous you are, how important you are, you both strip down to your t-shirt and your shorts and you go out in a court and you know who wins? You know who wins? The better player, that's right. The better player wins. Unless, of course, you're the U.S. ambassador and you can, have, you can get arrested and detained in Guantanamo Bay and they'll torture you and waterboard you. But that's a different story. It didn't happen to me. But yes, I beat him. <laughs> I only played him once. And... and <laughs> But that's, he's not the guy I usually play with. When I do go down there, I have a guy that, I, that is more my speed in life, and he's a farmer from Iowa. And his name is Mike, and I love Mike, great guy. We have a lot in common, more than me and the ambassador. And so uh, I love to play with Mike. We're pretty evenly matched. And uh, Mike sold his farm in Iowa. I'm assuming he made quite a bit of money when he sold his farm because he moved to southwest Florida. And uh, now he's there all the time. And when I go down there, I, pl I play tennis with him. And I remember the first year he arrived after selling his farm, he showed up in a pickup truck. He's a farmer. That's what you drive. The next year, I go down on, on vacation, and he's driving an Audi Q7. Do you know what that is? A very snazzy SUV. The next year, I show up, he's driving an Audi S8, a $100,000 car. Last time I go down, you ready for this? He's driving the one and only in all of southwest uh, Florida, which I happen to know, the one and only Audi RS e-tron GT. Here's the picture of it. Yes, that's me standing beside it. This car is an all-electric Audi car. It's 590 horsepower. It does zero to 60 miles an hour in 2.9 seconds. It's a rocket ship, and he told me how much he paid for it. He paid 164,000 US dollars for it. That's over $200,000. And the fact that he was willing to let me, stinking, sweaty from playing tennis, drive his car is a testimony to the fact that boys are still a farm boy. That's all he is. But, but when I got home, I was telling Kathy this story about this car. And I said, you know what? There's no way in God's green earth Mike would be buying this car if he lived in Iowa, driving through the farm roads. He's only buying this car, why? Because he has taken on, and I love this guy, I'm not criticizing him, but he's taken on the spirit of that city. When you have that kind of money, and I'm, and I'm just being honest with you, there's this tremendous pull on you when you are around the things, see, we're not actually jealous of the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates. We get envious of the person who lives next door to us. And if he's driving a Rolls Royce and lives in a man mansion and has a yacht, that has a particular effect on us. And if you think you're not affected by this, I'm saying dream on. We're all affected by this. It's not a matter if we're going to be pulled into the kingdom of this world, the city, uh, a city of man. The question is, to what degree are we going to be pulled into it? And we find Abraham. Abraham decided he was going to live above that, which he did. And we find Jesus, which is such an incredible example for us. I know he was Jesus, but still. Did you ever notice how unencumbered he was by the world? He never got sucked in and pulled into any of this thing. And he always looked up to the kingdom in heaven and could care less about this world. Remember what he told his disciples? Oh, by the way, you know, the birds have nests and foxes have holes. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So if you want to hang out with me, we have got nothing. 
And when he died, when Jesus died, what did he own to his name? His robe that they cast lots for. He didn't even have anything else to, to divide up. They had to cast lots for his robe. He left this world with absolutely nothing. Now, none of us can live that way. I'm not criticizing any of you for your house you own, or the car you drive, good for you. Uh, that's, that's not my point here. My point is, we get so pulled into this. And you know, it's interesting what Augustine said to the Romans. He said, God wants to give you good things, but your hands are too full to receive them. What was he saying? He was saying, your hands are too full of the things of this world. You're you're struggling with that and you can't get past that. And so every one of us has this propensity in this way. And so I want to sort of frame this in this last couple of minutes here in, in an important discussion that Augustine talked about, but also goes all the way back to Plato, and social scientists are still talking about it today. And it helps us understand what things in life are really valuable and what things they aren't, because we get confused about that. And the terminology, because if we're living in the city of God, this, our values are higher than the values of the city of man. But how do we t- determine what are, what are higher values? I mean, obviously, we know biblical things. We get that. But it's more important than that, and it's more nuanced than that. And so social scientists split it up this way. They call it intrinsic values and extrinsic values. And intrinsic values are things that don't really matter externally. They only matter internally. And extrinsic, as the word might you know, denote, denote, have to do with things that have external value. And it's not, it doesn't mean they're not important. And here's a beautiful way to illustrate it. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Same thing. So you love to play the piano. And if you love to play the piano and you just play it at home for yourself, nobody else is around, and you're getting enjoyment from that, and you're doing it for no other reason than the fact that you love to play the piano, that is an intrinsic reason to do it. Now, on the other hand, if you play the piano because your parents made you, or you're trying to impress somebody else, maybe impress a woman or something, or maybe you can't stand playing the piano, but you need to pay the rent somehow, so you go down to some stinky club and you do it, that's an extrinsic reason, and you're doing it to get something further down the line out of it. And it's not real, you're not doing it intrinsically, you're doing it extrinsically for some other reason. Now, don't misunderstand this. Not all extrinsic reasons are wrong. Uh, some of you go to work for the extrinsic reason that you'll get paid, right? Uh, you know, if you go for a colonoscopy, there's no intrinsic reason to do that. You, you, were, you were subjecting to yourself to a great indignity for, for the benefit of the fact that maybe they'll diagnose cancer and you won't die from it in two years. And so, you know, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But here's what we've discovered. We have a world that is completely preoccupied with extrinsic things, things that are external. And they learn right from the very earliest age. Our culture is so bombarded by this. They tell us that the average four-year-old, by the time he's four years old, uh, actually can identify a hundred name brands of products. They say that by four years old, uh, almost any kid in the entire world can say the word McDonald's. Uh, where the restaurant, the McDonald's fast food, before they can say their own last name. 
And there's something wrong with this picture, and they've been bombarded with this, all these imageries, and, they, and they've been told what's really valuable in life is a bunch of things that aren't valuable in life. And so they start off to school, and they have to have the latest iPhone and the latest clothes and the latest you know, video box of some sort. You're, they have to wear Nike basketball shoes, even though 99.9% of them don't play basketball. Therefore, there's no intrinsic reason to own those shoes. The reason you own that, those shoes is so someone else will see you wearing those shoes. It's important for your image and you're not going to fit in. These poor kids are being trapped in this world. And what kind of adults are they going to turn into? Well, I'll tell you what kind of adults they're going to turn into. They've been looking at these concerts. You, you've seen, I don't know if, how many of you have been to a concert or seen a concert recently. People don't just go and watch a concert and stand there and listen and sway to the music anymore. They all go and hold their cell phone up and take videos of it. Have you seen these pictures? Do you know what I'm talking about? You, you can't go. So they all go to the Justin Bieber concert. They've finally seen Justin Bieber in concert. And every single kid has got a cell phone up and he's videotaping it. Are you following this? Instead of enjoying the concert and the moment they're in at the time, they're videotaping it so they can post it on Instagram or TikTok and say, see, I was at the Justin Bieber concert. You know what? Nobody wants to watch your stupid video. Your stupid video is going to be super crappy. And there's a million other better videos out there you're not even going to watch it. <laughs> it's funny you're cheering about that. Do you know that a few weeks ago, Adele interrupted her concert and said, would you people put away your cell phones? I'm here. I'm right here. Just watch the concert instead of trying to videotape it. And she bawled them out. She was kind of mad at them. I, I actually know all about this. This, ha- this actually thing happened to me. I was in Calgary. I was preaching in this church. And I was just about, I was sitting over there, just like I kind of do here. And there was a woman sitting right there. And and about two minutes, I was about to go up to preach. She waves me over and she says, Dearie, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She says, how long are you going to be? I said, what? She says, how long are you planning on preaching? I said, about 35 minutes. She says, well, try to hurry it along. I need to be home by noon so I can watch you on television. (laughs) And I said to her, I'm right here. I'm right here. She, could, she was meeting me in person, could ask me any question she wanted, and she asked me, how long are you going to be because I need to go watch you on television? There's something really weird about this, right? You're following this? And so the, the point I'm making is this. We get so caught up in this thing, and this is why we get pulled into the, the city of man, the kingdom of the, of, the, of the world, the things of this world. They all draw us in, and we just have to ask ourselves a our question. Is that where we really want to live? Do we want to live with the values? Like I said, God has things to give you, but he can't give them to you because your hands are so full. And it's time for us to try as best we can to let go of this world. You say, how do I do that? How do I let go of things of this world? How do I find those things that are intrinsic? And I'll tell you how you do it. You start... Just make an inventory and start thinking about what are the things that really bring me joy? What are the things that bring me fulfillment in life? And if you could start to isolate those things and do more of them, you'd be amazed at what that will do to your quality of life. And they did 22 studies on depression and 14 studies on anxiety. And they found that in every single case, people who were depressed or full of anxiety were preoccupied with extrinsic things in their life. And when people get focused on the internal things on the intrinsic things. And I understand that you got to go to a job and you have to work and you have to make a living. I understand what that means. But here's my advice to you. You do that for a season. And if you really hate your job and you can't learn to love your job, you know what you should do? You should get a new job. 
You should do something. You're only going to work once. You've got 40 years of working life. Find something you love to do. I always tell our staff, I say, would you do this job if we didn't pay you? Why are you asking that question? <laughs> I just want to know, do you love your job? Derek, would you do this job if we didn't pay you? The answer is yes, whether you like it or not. And you see, <laughs> see, there's a, here's the one thing about the church that I think is really important is that we provide intrinsic value for people. Because the things we do aren't about some external benefit. It's not about impressing somebody else. It's not about status. It's not any about those things. It's all, all about us engaging with God in the kingdom of heaven. Think about this. When you come into worship, and I love online worship, but it doesn't compare to worshiping in person. And when you're here, you are not worshiping so the person next to you will hear you. You don't want them to hear you. I know because I've heard you. You're not worshiping because somebody's paying you. We're not going to pay you to worship. We might pay you to stop, but we're not going to pay you to worship. But you come in here and there's something about what happens in the church is we get caught up in the presence of God. We get caught up in the fullness of God. We get caught up in the intrinsic value of a relationship. That's what the scripture is talking about. There is a city whose streams make glad the city of God. And when we begun, begin to press into God, we discover this amazing truth that life can be meaningful and life can be full. And the church is one of the greatest places, not the only place, but it's one of the greatest places that happens. Because we do very little things for extrinsic reasons. We do it for intrinsic reasons. And that we're pressing into the kingdom of God. You know, this is what the scripture says. Jesus said, he looked to us. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his soul. But what happens when we come together and we worship God, when you serve God, when you minister to others, where you get out of, out of, out of your selfish needs and you pursue what, to help someone else in the world, something happens inside of you. And all of a sudden you find some true meaning for your life and you discover who you were meant to be in Christ because you have found that place where you are pursuing the kingdom in heaven, the city of God that is above, that brings you peace and love and joy and fulfillment and meaning in life. There is a river whose streams make glad this city of God. And that's the tale of two cities. Let's stand together. I just decided I was going to keep ramp ramping that up until you started cheering before I ended. <laughs> I knew I could get you there. All right, I want to ask you to do me a favor. I want to ask you to all bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment. I think you've seen the stark contrast between the world and, and, and the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? The simple avenue there is a relationship with Jesus Christ and making him the Lord and Savior. And if you haven't done that, if you don't know that if you were to die today or tomorrow or next week, if you're going to heaven, I'm talking to you. And as long as you have that personal relationship with Jesus, you're never fully going to enjoy this thing called the city of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so if you haven't made that decision with every head bowed, with every eye closed, I'd like you to give you an opportunity to do that today. I'm not going to call you forward, I'm not going to single you out. But if today you'd like to make that decision right where you are, nobody's looking around, I'd like you to just slip up your hand. Just take a moment and slip up your hand. Just look around this room. If you're online watching, there's a little icon that shows up and it's a hand and you just click that hand and by clicking that hand you're making that decision that that's what you want to do 
So let's pray all together. And if you raise your hand or you click the icon online, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. And yet while I was still a sinner, you loved me so much, you died for me. On the third day you rose again. And you forever live to me, my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. I thank you that you're inviting me into your city. The city of God. And though the world pulls on me, and it will always pull on me, I remember today that my citizenship is in heaven. And that my allegiance is to you. And in that I will find joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.